Hello and welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I'm thankful for all of my listeners, uh, the interactions I've had on Facebook, as well as Twitter and all the different social media platforms. I really appreciate you listening to the podcast and being a faithful listener over the years. You know, I've been doing Understanding Christianity for a little over five years now, and a lot of the material on here are from my sermons on Sunday morning as well as my Wednesday night teachings, but predominantly, it's been a platform for me to interact with those that are not Reformed in their theology, that aren't Calvinistic, and particularly uh, traditional Southern Baptists, non-Calvinists, provisionists are the ones that I've, I've tried to interact with, and I hope I've done that in a way that is accurate, is compassionate, and is cordial. And so I've been asking some questions over the past couple of days, basically saying, why, why do I do this? Why do I spend the time and the energy trying to understand what they believe, trying to interact with them, uh, trying to defend Reformed theology against this? I mean, what, what difference does it really make? And why are we focusing so much on our differences and not really honing in on where we are similar? are the things that we hold in common. And it's a good in-house debate, and it, help, it helps listeners to kind of understand the differences um, so that you can be able to understand the other view a little bit more easily. But, you know, this podcast, I want to do something different. I just want to talk about some things that um, are helpful to me in my ministry as far as being a Reformed theologian and how do you interact with others that are different than you? Um, how, how do you find commonality? Um, are you a closed-off Calvinist or are you a cooperative, compassionate Calvinist? Do you get so rigid and dogmatic in your beliefs that you find yourself not having anything in common with other believers, and you're so rigid and dogmatic that there's not this cooperation, especially among Southern Baptists, which is my tribe, because within the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, there are, are differences, strong differences of opinion, but we still cooperate around the gospel, around the cooperative program, around missions. You know, every Wednesday here in Sterling in northeastern Colorado, um, I, for the past seven, actually at that, about the past eight years, um, three of us are still together, are a part of this, but seven pastors, we meet together every Wednesday for prayer, for encouragement, and just for camaraderie. And this has been so helpful to me over the years. Now, we're, we're a lot different in our style of church, in our theology, um, so, you know, I'm the Reformed Southern Baptist, who is the strongest of the Reformed out of these guys that meet together. Um, we have the Berean Church, which is, if you're not familiar with Berean, um, it's more like a Bible church. And so they're, they're I would call them quasi-Calvinistic, dispensational, probably a little bit more like a John MacArthur-type theology, but maybe not as strong in the Reformed. And so we probably have the closest 
um, theology are to churches. And then there's First Baptist. Uh, they have a new pastor, which has been there for about nine months, and he's very evangelistic, um, definitely not Calvinistic, uh, but he comes from a kind of a Bible church uh, background. We have the Sterling Nazarene Church, and obviously, um, you know, that pastor has Nazarene theology, which is a lot different than where I stand as far as believing you can lose your salvation and things like that. Uh, we have um, a pastor from the Assembly of God Church, and he and I are on the farthest ex- extremes. Um, uh, he's, he's a full-blown Arminian. Uh, he speaks in tongues. Uh, he has spoken out against Calvinism in his church. And then the other pastor is um, from the Evangelical Free Church. And so um, I would call him quasi-reformed, um, he, you know, and, and, and he's got solid theology. And so when we meet together, we don't talk so much about our theological differences But we are in the trenches together, encouraging one another in the gospel. We talk a lot about pastoral practice. We talk a lot about how we're doing discipleship in our churches, Um, especially with this COVID-19 issue. We've worked together on how do we reopen our churches, what policies, um, how do we do ministry. And so it's been invaluable to have brothers in Christ that are different theologically, but we hold together in the fundamentals of the gospel. And so as I meet every week with these men and get encouragement from them, I step back and I think, well, what what does it really matter? What's the real issue or difference in provisionism, Calvinism, Arminianism? I mean, there's a lot of differences, but let's just start with where we can agree, and that is on the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the word gospel itself means good news. It's an announcement of what God has done for us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it's, it's not simply good advice that you can take or leave. It's not a mere suggestion to help improve your life. It's not a private spiritual experience with no grounding in historical facts and truth claims. Instead, we proclaim the gospel as news. We announce the gospel. People must hear the gospel. It would be similar to a leading story on cable news or a banner ad on a website. Um, The gospel announces a historical fact that has happened. For example, um, there's a vaccine for COVID-19, which everybody's kind of waiting for. That would be an announcement that everybody would be hearing that would be good news. Um, And so let's just talk briefly about the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's a foundational passage that defines for us the gospel. At its core, the gospel manifests itself in the historical facts surrounding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and it centers on a substitutionary atonement. It proclaims that Jesus died in our place, bearing God's wrath, paying the penalty for sin we deserved so that God could forgive us and accept us. And so the gospel is the news of the death, burial, 
and resurrection of Jesus, the historical facts that happened in history. Paul also says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. So the gospel is something that we must believe. We believe in Jesus. We need to hear the gospel. There's power in the gospel. It is a potent message that we must share with others in order for them to be saved. In um, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 7, Paul says this. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The gospel is a message that must be proclaimed in order for people to be freed from their sin. It's a treasure, Paul says, in jars of clay. We are to proclaim this gospel. We're, we're frail. We're weak. We're like earthen clay pots that are easy to break. And so the message is not us. The message is Christ. The gospel is also the word of truth. In Ephesians 1, 13-14, Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's the word of truth that must be heard. The gospel is the word of truth that must be heard in order to be saved. Paul echoes this in Colossians 1, 5-6. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Okay, the gospel needs to be preached, it needs to be heard, it needs to be understood. It's the word of truth. It's also life. 2 Timothy 1, 8-10 Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's through the gospel that we have life, that Christ abolished death, that we have eternal life in the gospel. And then Paul says in Acts 20, 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, nothing's of any importance to me except for to testify to the gospel of grace. And so, we must 
testify to the gospel. We must preach the gospel. The gospel needs to be heard. The gospel needs to be understood. We are all about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the gospel and the command to call all people everywhere to repent and to believe. And so I think every single evangelical Christian can agree with this. Whether you're a provisionist, whether you're an Arminian, whether you're a non-reformed Southern Baptist, whether you're a Calvinist, Reformed, we can all agree that the gospel is the powerful message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And anyone who's ever going to be saved from their sins and to be forgiven must hear the gospel so that they can repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. And so we can all agree upon that. And it's interesting that the most Calvinistic set of beliefs, the canons of Dort, which came from the Synod of Dort, which kind of articulate the five heads of doctrine related to Reformed theology, in their first head of doctrine under divine election, they start with the commonality that all evangelical Christians start with. Under their first head of doctrine, under divine election and reprobation, Article 1, As all men have sinned in Adam, lie under the curse and are deserving of eternal death, God would have done no injustice by leaving them all to perish and delivering them to condemnation on account of sin, according to the words of the apostle, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be brought under the judgment of God. That's Romans 3.19. And for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And for the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. It's interesting, the canons of Dort start almost with the Roman road. That all of sin fall short of the glory of God. Everyone's a sinner. We are justly punished in Adam. And then Article 2 says, But in this the love of God was manifested, that he sent his only begotten Son into the world, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Obviously, that's John 3.16. And then Article 3, And that men may be brought to believe... God mercifully sends the messengers of these most joyful tidings to whom he will and at what time he pleases, by whose ministry men are called to repentance and faith in Christ crucified. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach in such they are sent? Romans ten fourteen through 15 Now, there's the quibble over the fact that God does this as he pleases and he sends these tidings to whom he chooses, That's the reform view, but the issue is is that the gospel must be proclaimed. That how can people call upon the name of the Lord unless there's people sent to preach the gospel? So in the reform confession, that's probably the most famous, the canons of Dort, right from the very beginning, there's this call that all men need to hear the gospel in order to be saved. Now, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, that's, that's the confession of faith that I personally hold to and that our church adheres to, which is the Reformed Baptist Confession. What does it have to say? It says in um, chapter 20, the gospel and the extent of its grace, basically echoing the same thing that the Canons of Dort does, because the covenant of works was broken by sin and was unable to confer life, God was pleased to proclaim the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, as the means of calling the elect and producing in them faith and repentance. 
In this promise, the gospel in its substance was revealed and made effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. Now, there's a quibble over there. You can quibble with the elect and the wording there, but this goes back to Genesis 3.15, where from the very beginning, God proclaimed the gospel in that a Messiah would come from the seed of a woman that would crush the head of Satan, and the gospel in its substance is for the salvation of sinners. Paragraph 2, this promise of Christ and of salvation through him is revealed in the word of God alone. The works of creation and providence, when assisted only by the light of nature, do not reveal Christ or grace through him, even in a general or obscure way. Much less are those without the revelation of him in the promise or gospel enabled to attain saving faith or repentance by seeing these works of God. Now, this is where we would argue with some of our provisionists that may believe that general revelation is enough to enable a response, the whole issue of inclusivism. Um, Of course, I'm an exclusivist. I believe it's only through the gospel alone that people are saved, and that's what the confession says. So you can argue whether the light of nature is sufficient, but what they're saying here is that the gospel is the means for repenting and coming to saving faith. And then paragraph 3, I'll uh, just kind of skip over that because that kind of is a, um, an explanation a little bit further on, on, on paragraph two. But paragraph four, the gospel is the only outward means of revealing Christ and saving grace, and it is abundantly sufficient for that purpose. Yet to be born again, brought to life or regenerated, those who are dead in trespasses also must have an effectual, irresistible work of the Holy Spirit and every part of their souls to produce in them new spiritual life. Without this, no other means will bring about their conversion to God. Now, this one paragraph in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith is the key difference between provisionism and Reformed theology. So you need to know this. If you're going to interact with provisionisms and their theology, the Second London Baptist Confession, chapter 20, paragraph 4, is the key difference. We would say the gospel is the only outward means of revealing Christ and saving grace, and it is abundantly sufficient for that purpose. Okay, provisionists come along and say, Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. It is abundantly sufficient to let a sinner know that they need to be saved. And that's where they stop. That is the grace. That is the prevenient grace. The outward presentation of the gospel. What the confession says is yet to be born again, to be brought to life or regenerated, those who are dead in trespasses also must have an effectual irresistible work of the Spirit. Okay, so there's the, there's, the, there's the rub. So if you want to know in a paragraph of Reformed theology in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, the key difference between provisionism and Reformed theology, it is there. Reformed theology says the gospel is the outward means of revealing Christ, but there also must be a effectual, irresistible work of the Spirit in the soul of a dead sinner. The provisionist says it's merely the gospel appeal that enables a response. Okay. So, but either way, where we can agree is that the gospel is the outward means of revealing Christ, and it needs to be preached and it needs to be proclaimed. So, what I'm trying to do here is, even though we have distinct differences 
we all have a lot of similarities in how we present the gospel. Okay, so here's the issue. Some people will say, you know, Calvinism is the gospel. You know, Calvinism is the gospel. And they've kind of misquoted Spurgeon who said, you know, Calvinism is the gospel. I am not one of those Calvinists who believe that. Calvinism is not the gospel. I've just told you what the gospel is. The gospel is the announcement of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the call to all people everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and the free gift of eternal life. Calvinism's not the gospel. So, what, what, what I understand is that, think about a house for a moment. Okay. The house, you look at a house, you live in a house, you enjoy your house. What do you not see in your house, but it's necessary in order for your house to function? Okay. When you go turn on your sink or you go use the restroom, you hope the plumbing works. Now, you don't see the plumbing. It's built into the foundation. It's built into the walls. Same thing with electricity. When you go in and you want to turn on your you know, a ceiling fan or turn on a light or turn on your TV, you, you don't see the electrical connections and things in your house, but it's there. So you enjoy the benefit of the house, but there has to be the plumbing and the electrical and all those things to make it work. And those things are hidden. Okay, so what's most important? Living and enjoying your house. But how can you do that? Through the things unseen, like the plumbing and the electricity. So it is with Reformed theology. What's the most important thing? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the house. Okay? For a Reformed person, okay, how does that all work? Well, behind the scenes, there's the theology, there's the foundation, there's the ways that we understand uh, how the gospel works, but the gospel is not Calvinism. The gospel is the gospel, but it, it, it works... It, it, it has the undergirding of the things that you can't see that's the theology. I hope that's a good illustration because uh, sometimes we focus so much on the plumbing, so much on the electricity, so much on the things that are hidden in the house that you don't just enjoy living in the house and turning on your TV or your stereo, or your sound system or whatever it is you, you enjoy um, that allows you to have that, that freedom in your house. And so ultimately, the focus should be on the gospel the gospel, not on Calvinism. Now, we as Calvinists understand that those doctrines we believe are undergirding the gospel. So what I want to do is let's just go through TULIP. I don't like the, particularly like um, some of the, the TULIP names, but it's a familiar acrostic. And by the way, it was really in the early 1900s in a publication um, that the word TULIP first came about. So uh, the, the acronym has only been around for about 100 years. Now, the canons of Dort clearly articulate these points, but the TULIP acrostic and the, the wording that's used has only been around for 100 years. But since a lot of people are familiar with it, let's just go through TULIP, and let's just talk about the similarities and the differences. And, and again, let's say, you know, who cares? Why does it matter? What's the big deal? Okay, total depravity. Okay, total depravity. Or total inability, whichever way you want to put it. Okay, So in it, when it comes to gospel proclamation, when it comes to sharing the gospel with unsaved people, what do we preach and how does it differ? So for example, if me and my Nazarene and Assembly of God friend were to go out into the neighborhoods here in Sterling, Colorado, or we were to meet people, 
how would we share the gospel and would it be much different when we share the gospel? Now, our assumptions and our theology are going to inform like what we believe about the gospel, but in our mere presentation of the gospel, would there be much difference? Okay, so as a Calvinist, what would I tell people? Well, I'll tell people that because of Adam's sin, he's plunged all people into sin and that you're born sinful. You're born under God's wrath. You're sinful. You are separated from God. You're hopeless without Jesus. You are going to hell without Jesus. Um, You need to have your sins forgiven because you're a sinner. And probably most evangelicals, regardless of your view, would say amen to that. Okay? So in our presentation of a person being a sinner, there's not much difference. Where the difference lies in is to the extent to which a human is sinful. Are they totally unable to come to faith without God's regenerating grace? Do they need prevenient grace? Is the mere gospel, do they have libertarian free will or is their will in bondage? That's the difference. But when you proclaim the gospel to somebody, we're all on the same page. We need to tell them, you're a sinner. You're under God's wrath. Hell is real. You need to flee the wrath to come. Without Jesus Christ as your Savior and you die in your sins, you will spend eternity in hell. You need to have your sins forgiven. Okay, so that's what we tell people. The issue that's the plumbing or the electricity that you don't see that there's our differences as to what extent is the person we're talking to sinful. Are they dead in trespasses and sins, i.e. Reformed theology? Do they have libertarian free will? Do they need provenient grace? That's the underpinning. But what you tell a person in front of them, what they need to know is that they are a sinner. They need to be saved. They can't save themselves They need to know how sinful they are. Now, it's up to you in your gospel proclamation or your witnessing how you want to flesh that out. I mean, if you want to deal with total depravity, if you want to deal with total inability, if you want to deal with libertarian free will, you can use that terminology. But the one thing where we have the commonality is is that people are sinful. Now, are they totally depraved? Are they spiritually sick? Are they guilty of Adam's sin, original sin, original guilt, all, all those issues? I mean, we can quibble about that, but, but a, an unsaved person needs to know they are depraved, they're sinful, they're separated from God. We can agree upon that. Okay, let's talk about unconditional election for a moment. Okay, as a Calvinist, I have never said to a person I'm witnessing to or on a Sunday, like for example, on a Sunday morning when I stand up and preach, and you can listen to this because I've got probably you know, 15 years of sermons online that you can hear. I've never stood before my congregation and said at the end of a sermon or giving a gospel appeal, you never hear me say something like this. If you're among the elect, pay attention to this because you need to repent and believe. If you're not among the elect, just tune me out because it doesn't matter anyway. In my gospel proclamation, I don't know who is among the elect. I'm not given that information, and I don't need to know that information, and God is not under obligation to give that to me. So when I look out across my congregation, I see lost sinners who need Jesus. And so what do I tell them? You need to repent and believe. 
You need to come to faith in Christ. You need to place your faith in Christ. I never say, you need to make sure you're among the elect, or you need to really figure out if you are unconditionally elected before the foundation of the world, and if you find that out, then you can come to faith in Christ. I, I never say things like that because you don't see things like that in the book of Acts, especially when, when the apostles are giving gospel proclamation. Now, when I preach or when I witness, there's the underpinning, there's the grounding, there's the plumbing, there's the electricity that comes to play. Okay? So election or predestination answers the question, why do people come to faith? Why do they do that? Okay, as a Reformed person, I believe in unconditional election. God has chosen that person before the foundation of the world, and that's why they came to faith, because they were elected to come to faith. You may be a non-Calvinist and believe that that person had the free will to choose to come, or maybe God foresaw their faith, or maybe you believe in corporate election. Whatever view of election you hold to, the issue is nobody's going to come to faith in Christ based upon a view of election. The way the Bible says a person comes to faith in Christ is they've got to hear the gospel in such a way that they can know that they're a sinner and they can repent and believe in Jesus. So where's the commonality? The commonality is, regardless of what view of election you hold to, people still need to hear the gospel. People still need to repent and believe. No one is saved without repenting and believing. Hear me very clearly. No one is saved without repenting and believing. You must repent and believe in order to be saved. So we can go out with my Arminian friends and we can tell people, you need to be saved. You cannot be saved unless you repent and believe. Would you repent and believe in Jesus now? Would you call upon the name of the Lord? Would you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I have no problem with saying that. I just know that if they do come to faith in Christ, that proves out that they were among the elect. My friend may say the reason they came to faith in Christ is because they used their free will. Either way, I can't control their response and he can't control their response. What we can control is the message that they need to hear, repent, and believe. So the doctrine of election is more the undergirding of why a person comes to faith, but everybody who's going to be saved has to call upon the name of the Lord, regardless of what view of election you hold to. No one's saved without repenting and believing. All right, let's talk about limited atonement. I don't like the word limited. I would prefer the term definite atonement or particular redemption because limited makes it sound like there's a limitation in Christ's blood um, and things like that. And so, as a Calvinist, I very rarely in my years have told an unsaved person, Christ died specifically for you so therefore believe in him because he died for you. Or I remember when I was growing up in a traditionalist Southern Baptist church in Texas back in the 70s and 80s, um, I was always told, if you were the only person who had ever lived, Jesus would have died for you. Well, maybe, maybe or maybe not, I, I don't know. Again, I don't know the, the identity of the elect, and I don't see really that kind of preaching in Acts. Um, so, the extent of the atonement, the intent of the atonement. Did Jesus die only for the elect and was his intention to die only for the elect? Okay, In your gospel proclamation, that view is going to affect how you present the atonement. Okay, So are you presenting 
the atonement as the grounds for a person believing in Christ, or are you presenting Jesus in his office as prophet, priest, and king as the grounding of your, of your gospel proclamation? Okay, so the real difference is, okay, so as a Calvinist, I believe in a definite atonement that when Christ died on the cross, he died specifically for the elect. His intention was to die specifically for the elect. He died in the place of the elect, particularly he bore their wrath, and those that he particularly died for and interceded for are going to come to faith in Christ. The other view would say that Jesus died on the cross, and there may be some confusion. They may say that there's a substitutionary atonement, that, that yes, Christ died in the place of sinners, but they only receive the benefits of the cross when they actually use their free will to accept Jesus, and then the benefits of the cross become theirs. They're applied to them um, at a point in time. Or in other words, it's kind of a potential atonement. Uh, Jesus died to make salvation possible if you meet the conditions in order to receive the benefits of the cross, but Jesus didn't die specifically for the elect. Okay, so let me just give you a quote from J.I. Packer. Um, again, Calvinistic book. He, he passed away a few weeks ago and probably one of, the, one of the greatest theologians of the past, you know, 50, 60 years. Um, his great book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, whether you're a Calvinist or not, it's, it's a good book to read just to know what we believe on our side. But let me give you a quote from J.R. Packer. He says this. It's a fairly long quote, so let me just give it to you. Quote, The fact is that the New Testament never calls on any man to repent on the ground that Christ died specifically and particularly for him. The basis on which the New Testament invites sinners to put faith in Christ is simply that they need him and he offers himself to them and that those who receive him are promised all the benefits that his death secured for his people. The gospel is not, believe that Christ died for everybody's sins and therefore for yours, any more than it is, believe that Christ died only for certain people's sins, so perhaps not for yours. The gospel is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sins and now offers you himself as Savior. So, I can stand before a congregation or, or look a lost person in the set, face in the eyes and say, Jesus Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. He died on the cross, and he rose again, and he is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and he's going to come back in power and glory. And anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, Jesus will save. He stands ready to receive all who would come to him in repentance and faith. So would you come to Jesus today? Not because he died specifically for you, but because Jesus offers himself as a perfect savior to anyone who would repent and believe. Now, again, your theology is going to determine that issue. I know that the, as a Reformed person, the reason that a person comes to faith in Christ is, again, because of election. The Father chose that person in eternity past. Because of limited atonement, Jesus died specifically for that person. And because of regeneration, the Holy Spirit has effectually called them and regenerated them at a point in time. But regardless of your, your view of the atonement, one thing you can tell people is that Jesus died on the cross he rose again, and he will receive all who come to him in repentance and faith. I just know that the reason why people come in repentance and faith, again, is the undergirding. Okay, let's talk about 
Irresistible grace. This is probably the biggest difference in a lot of our theologies in practical terms, when it, how it fleshes itself out in evangelism. I mean, it's related to the issue of total depravity. Um, if people are totally depraved and totally unable to come to faith in Christ, if they're spiritually dead, if they're in bondage to sin, then something irresistible and effectual has to happen to overcome that condition. And we believe God sovereignly, irresistibly, effectually makes a sinner alive, grants them repentance and faith, overcomes that inability. The provisionist, on the other hand, like I told you earlier, the main difference, they deny total inability and they believe that the mere gospel appeal is sufficient to enable a response and that there is no need for an extra, what they would call an extra work of irresistible or effectual mystical grace needed, that the gospel is the grace. Now, Arminians would say there needs to be prevenient grace. So, so again, all of us, unless we're Pelagian, believe there needs to be some type of grace. The question is not, is grace needed? It's what's the nature of the grace? Because all of us believe that humans are sinful. Again, the question is to what extent? That's the difference. Not that are humans sinful. We all agree with that. The question is to what extent? Okay, do human sinners need grace in order to be saved? Yes, all of us agree with that, unless you're a Pelagian. The question is, what's the type of grace? Okay, so let's just talk about agreement. Are all humans sinful? Yes, where's the difference? The extent of that depravity. Do all humans need some type of grace in their life to bring them to faith in Christ? Yes. The question then becomes, what's the nature of that grace? For the provisionist, the nature of that grace is the gospel appeal alone. For the Arminian, the traditional Arminian, it's a prevenient grace. For the Calvinist, it's an irresistible, effectual grace. So, Regardless of what view you hold on the nature of the grace or the extent of the depravity, the gospel still needs to be preached. There must be the historical facts of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The person needs to be confronted in their sin, that they are a sinner in need of forgiveness. They need to be shown that Jesus is sufficient to save them. And they still need to repent and believe. Again, the question becomes, why do they repent and believe? Well, the provisionists will say the reason they repented and believed is because they had libertarian free will. They did not suppress the truth. When the mere gospel of came to them, they used their libertarian free will to accept the message, and thus, thus they were given life because they responded positively to God's gospel appeal. The Arminian says they're born spiritually dead. They need to have some type of grace. It's not an irresistible, effectual grace. It's a prevenient grace that comes before. It's still inward. It's still supernatural. But it basically is an assisting grace that gets you to the point where you can cooperate with that grace, but it can still be resisted. The Calvinist says, no, God takes the elect all the way to saving faith by overcoming spiritual deadness and giving an irresistible grace. So again, the differences are to what extent are humans sinful, and what's the nature of the grace. But where the commonality is, is the gospel still needs to be presented. A person still needs to know they're sinful, and they still need to know they need to be saved by grace, not by works. The question then becomes, okay, why do they come to faith? And that's where the differences are. Okay, let's talk about perseverance of the saints. Okay, as Calvinists, we believe that God preserves his elect to the end. They will neither totally nor finally fall away from a state of grace, 
but they will persevere to the end through God's sustaining grace. And so in our gospel proclamation, we hold out the promise of eternal life, that Jesus gives eternal life to those who come to him. Now, traditional Southern Baptist provisionists, they're going to agree with us on this. We're, we're in agreement on eternal security. Most provisionists, like Leighton Flowers and others, Southern Baptists, almost all of them agree in what we would call eternal security, that once you're saved, you can't lose your salvation, that you can't fall away, that those that are truly saved can't lose your salvation. Now, an Arminian would probably disagree with us. They believe that not necessarily you can lose your salvation, but you can use your libertarian free will to walk away. And that's the question I have for provisionists, is that um, they agree with us in eternal security, but there seems to be an inconsistency because at least the Arminian's consistent. Because the Arminian says, I used my libertarian free will to get in because I cooperated with provenient grace. And once I'm in, there's still sustaining grace needed for me to persevere to the end, and I can still cooperate with that sustaining grace, or I can choose to walk away from that sustaining grace. But in the end, I still have libertarian free will to get myself in or to take myself out. The provisionist would say, you use your libertarian free will to get in, but it's God's sustaining grace that will make sure that you stay in. And probably their, their answer to that would be in regeneration, something fundamentally happens to the person that changes their nature so that they would not fall away from saving faith. In other words, their libertarian free will is not totally free in the sense that they could choose to walk away because God makes a change in them in regeneration that somehow limits that libertarian free will. In other words, you had libertarian free will before, but now once you're saved, it's somewhat limited in the sense that God won't let you use that libertarian free will to get yourself out of salvation. Now, here's a question I've been asking that I've been, you know, obviously one of the questions that comes up in provisionist theology is the issue of judicial hardening. Um, that's where they kind of, where we disagree, we hold the total inability, they hold the judicial hardening. That We've had conversations about that. But as I've been thinking about the issue, there, there's a question I have, and, and hopefully they can answer this for me. I haven't heard it, maybe I haven't searched hard enough, maybe I haven't read or listened to them hard enough, but if one of them's listening, if Leighton Flowers or the, or the, um, or the guys on the provisionist um, YouTube uh, group that have just started interacting with me, answer this for me, please, and, and help me understand your view. I'd like to know what you guys believe on this, okay? So, in provisionism, you guys believe that a reason, the reason that a person doesn't come or can't come or refuses to come to faith is because, I'm going to make sure I accurately portray your, your, your view here, is that they have continually suppressed the truth, they have grown calloused over time, and they've become judicially hardened and they've been blinded to that gospel appeal. Okay, so a person, the reason a person rejects the truth is because they become judicially hardened or grown calloused over time. Which means that a person is in a condition of being hardened. They've been given over. Okay, my question then is, can a person who is judicially hardened or have grown calloused, is that the end? Is that, is that it? Is there any chance at all that they can get out of that state? Can they get out of being judicially hardened or is that pretty much they've put themselves out of any ability whatsoever 
to be saved. Can a judicially hardened person ever get saved? And if they can get themselves, and I want to use the word get themselves out of that, but if you believe a judicially hardened person who's grown callous over the time and has continued to suppress the truth, if they're in that condition of hardness, then how do they get out of it? And here's my question. If the mere gospel appeal was sufficient to enable a positive response to come to faith in Christ, is that gospel appeal still efficient to a hardened, callous sinner who's chosen over time not to hear? So it's a different condition than they were before. They've, they've continually suppressed the truth. And so... If they're in a condition of being hardened, is the mere gospel appeal still sufficient? Or my question is, does God have to do something in them internally, supernaturally, mystically to change that hardness, to open that blindness, to to bring about a softness? And if God does have to do that, then does he merely do that through the gospel appeal again? Do they somehow... All of a sudden, the light bulb turns on and they say, okay, I've been suppressing the truth all this time, but I heard the gospel appeal now in this hardened state. I'm going to choose to believe it. Or have they become so hardened that God has to do a work in them? And if God has to do a work in a hardened sinner, then you guys are conceding that there has to be some type of internal mystical work to, to overcome that hardenedness. So I would like an answer on that. I guess my question is, Twofold. Number one, can a judicially hardened person ever come to faith in Christ, or have they placed themselves outside of that? And if they do, or if they can, what's the means by which that hardness is overcome? Is it just the mere presentation of the gospel being consistent with the reason why, uh, you know, basically consistent with your view that that's that's the sufficient means of bringing about a person's faith, or is there a need for God to do an extra? sovereign, some type of work in them to change that hardness? That's, that's the question I would have. So in the grand scheme of things, we can argue all day long, and it's fun to get into these debates about our differences and about judicial hardening and total inability and irresistible grace and prevenient grace and the mere gospel appeal and corporate election and unconditional election and conditional foreseen election and limited atonement versus unlimited atonement um, and all these different things. And that's fun and it's engaging and it's in-house But when it comes to sinners who are lost and need to hear the gospel, what are our commonalities? I can go out with the provisionist. I can go out with Leighton Flowers. I can go out with my Arminian Nazarene pastor friend. I can go out with my Assembly of God, um, our Wesleyan pastor friend. And what can we together, arm in arm, tell someone who doesn't know Jesus? Well, I think we can say this and be in commonality. We can both say, You're sinful and you need Jesus. You're a sinner and you need Jesus. Again, the difference is is to what extent is that person sinful, but we both agree that they're sinful. Okay? We both believe people need to hear the gospel presented clearly, boldly. Why do they need to hear the gospel? Because how can they call upon him who they've not heard? So, yes, we believe the gospel needs to be heard. They need to hear the historical facts of the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again according to the scriptures. 
that he is a perfect savior, that he can forgive sin, that he can grant eternal life, that it has to come by a free gift of grace. Again, what's the difference? Your view of election may affect how you understand the underpinnings behind that, your view of the atonement, but, but a person needs to hear the gospel. And then a sinner must be commanded to repent and believe in Jesus. Merely assenting to historical facts is not saving faith, but they have to place their faith in him personally. They must come to faith in Christ. They must trust in Christ. And we know the promises that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the gospel appeal must be universal and indiscriminate. In other words, we don't discriminate who we share the gospel with. The gospel appeal must go out to everyone. Again, people are sinful. They need to hear the gospel. They need to repent and believe. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel appeal must be universal and indiscriminate. I think all provisionists, Arminians, Calvinists can agree upon those issues. The differences, again, come in what extent is the person you're talking to? What do you believe about the extent of their depravity? What do you believe about election and why they would come? What do you believe about the intent and the extent of Jesus' death on the cross? What do you believe about the nature of grace? Is it irresistible and effectual? Is it prevenient? Is it the mere gospel appeal? What do you believe about the person if they do come to faith in Christ? Can they lose that salvation? And so sometimes I can focus so much on the differences to try to help explain provisionism to my Calvinist friends that have a hard time understanding it. But I thought on this podcast, I wanted to focus on our commonalities because sometimes there's so much um, crud in the world right now related to Christians. I mean, I mean, John MacArthur's getting hammered for trying to open up his church and have church on Sunday. Um, we're dealing with mischaracterizations related to um, what, what people would call systemic racism in our country. And, and so there, there's, there's those issues. You've got the homosexual transgender agenda coming in. You've got all of these ideologies coming against the church. And I'm afraid that in a moment such as this, we can focus so much on our differences in Calvinism versus Arminianism versus provisionism that if we're not careful, we may be needing to put those differences aside and stand together on the essentials of the gospel just to survive in a culture that hates Jesus and hates the church and hates the gospel. And so sometimes it's important to find out where we stand together so that we can come together on those commonalities, we can stand for the the truths of the scripture, and we can hold fast to the gospel. And it's fun to talk about our differences and and to have those intramural in-house debates, but um, on this podcast, I wanted us to focus on our our commonalities and kind of help you see those, those similarities and differences. So I really appreciate you listening to Understanding Christianity. I thank you for trying to um, interact and engage. Again, one of my goals is to um, be cordial, to be compassionate, to be fair, to try to present the other side the best I can. Um, There's so much confusion, and there's so much vitriol, and there's so much um, lack of charity out there that I think it's important that that we interact with each other with compassion and try to understand the other side. And so I hope that um, understanding Christianity and my ministry here um, helps to, to facilitate that. And I hope that you would have that same attitude as well. Are you a closed-off dogmatic Calvinist or are you a 
cooperative, compassionate Calvinist? That would be the question I would leave you with today. So would we all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus?